the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hello, OnScript listeners. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Matt Lynch, a co-host of the OnScript podcast, along with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, Chris Tilling, and Amy Brown-Hughes. Thank you so much for tuning in, and apologies for the audio quality of this intro. I'm on the road at the moment, and I'm using a little handheld recorder for those of you who care. In this episode, Aaron Heim and Chris Tilling co-host an interview with Darren Sariski, a colleague of Aaron's at Wycliffe Hall, Oxford. They're speaking with him about his book, Reading the Bible Theologically, and I know you're going to enjoy this one. As a quick reminder, if you haven't yet done so, please take a few moments to do two things for us. First of all, if you could give us a rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, that would be very helpful. By some strange alchemy, it helps people find us. And also, if you're hiking somewhere in the Grand Canyon this summer, um, or you know maybe somewhere uh, equally majestic um, and expansive, go over to the, the edge of the north or south rim. And, and please yell onscript.study and hear it echo throughout the canyon because um, the reason I'm asking you to do that is that it's, a, it's an efficient way to get the word out about the podcast and we will give hikers something to listen to while they enjoy the scenery. And, and I think, I'm not sure, but I think it helps um, our iTunes ratings as well uh, if you do that. So thank you so much to all of you who help us behind the scenes as well, to Ed Hatke who produces the show, Rebecca Terhune and Tommy Molman, who help us out with social media and communications, and James Steinbach, who is helping us with the website. You're all incredibly uh, helpful and generous and patient and appreciated, so thank you. All right, on with the episode. Hello, Unscript listeners. This is Aaron Heim. I'm coming to you today from Wycliffe Hall, University of Oxford, where I am tutor in biblical studies. I'm joined today by co-host Chris Tilling of St. Melitus College. Hello, everyone. And our guest today is Darren Sariski, who is formerly a departmental lecturer in modern theology at the University of Oxford, but is on to new and exciting things at Australian Catholic University in Melbourne, Australia. We are talking today about Darren's new book entitled Reading the Bible Theologically, which Darren has just published with Cambridge University Press. This book is among the first book-length treatments of the topic of theological interpretation of scripture, and in it, Darren is seeking to give a theological account of both the text and, I think most innovatively, the reader. A few months ago, Darren invited Chris and I to respond to a few chapters of his book at his own book launch, so we thought it was only right to repay the favor and invite him to come on OnScript. So, Darren, welcome to OnScript. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Darren, you've been working on uh, scriptural interpretation for a while now and from a few different angles. So how did you get interested in this area of theology? I think I initially got interested in all this through my seminary studies when I was being taught uh, how to read the Bible. And I started thinking about, um, I suppose, the pluses and minuses of the approach that I was being given, and a lot of, I mean, there were several pluses. I was learning all about, you know, the usefulness of biblical languages, 
and the usefulness of understanding historical background, but I wasn't being given much about how theology can be useful within the process of interpretation. So I think a lot of my research just comes out of feeling that um, that point had been just a bit de-emphasized or not stressed as much as it could have been in the initial teaching that I myself was given. And that led you into PhD studies where you wrote a thesis on what topic? Um, I mean, it was sort of broadly in the same area, theology and the Bible. Um, The thesis I wrote was on a specific um, church father named Basil of Caesarea from the fourth century. And I put him in dialogue with a number of theologians from our own context, uh, so Stanley Hauerwas and Rowan Williams, for the book version at least, um, and I thought a bit about what they were all saying about what's happening theologically when the Bible is being read. So it was a bit of a prequel, I think, to the book that I've just published now. Um, the book that's out in 2019 is is a sequel to the first book, and it's um, more constructive. I think it's it's me giving my own view of things more strongly. Um, and I'm also weighing in on a different question. I'm dealing with the question of just what theological reading of the Bible actually is, um, or in other words, what difference it would make to read the Bible with a Christian faith perspective. Hmm. And if you go back even further than your PhD studies in seminary, uh, how did you get interested in academic theology to begin with? Did you, you know, grow up thinking that you wanted to be a professional theologian, or did you come to this a bit later through some other circumstances? I was always, um, you know, going to church, growing up, and being involved in ministry. I, I was always interested in sort of thinking side of all of that and you know major questions that come out of those practices of preaching and um and so on and i think as as time went along as i was an undergraduate student and i had to think about what would happen after i finished as an undergrad um it seemed like a good fit for the interest that i had and um you know, some of the the skills that I seem to have to go in in the direction of ministry and um, explore what what it would be like to work in theological education. So I think it was, for me, a, a sort of process that evolved over time, deciding on this path to follow. And do you see your scholarship then as primarily serving the church or the academy, or are you trying to walk that line and do both? I think I... I wouldn't say it's either one of the two. I think I would want to say that the writing that I do is is hopefully interesting to both audiences and can serve the purposes of both audiences. So I try to avoid feeling like I have to choose between the two. So I want to have the the sort of rigor in thinking that, I mean, it's very much emphasized in university contexts like the one that we ourselves are in. Um, but I, I don't think that means that I have to put all sorts of faith commitments or theological interests to the side in order to achieve that rigor. 
So, Darren, what big question did you set out to answer in reading the Bible theologically? I think the easiest way to explain that is just to say, I was asking myself um, what difference it makes to read the Christian Bible with a faith commitment to Christianity. Um, what sort of shifts does that result in um, in the whole process of reading? That's really the question that I had in my own mind coming out of my own experience. And I mean, I found that this debate that at least in academic circles is known as theological reading of scripture, um, I mean, is one in which lots of people were asking, if not exactly that same question, at least lots of questions along those lines. So I, I think I found a, a sort of academic context in which I could think about the things that, um, you know, were just on my mind naturally. And what smaller questions then emerged as you began to think and read and research? Well, I suppose a lot of historical types of questions were were smaller issues that fed into the big project. So there are lots of questions about, um, you know, which figures from the past would be helpful as interlocutors. Um, and then what were they saying? Like, what is what sort of contribution could I get from, say, Augustine of Hippo from the 4th and 5th century? Um, or what modern figures would be useful people to sort of think with? And then what, like, what claims were they making and how did they, how did they relate to um, the kind of position that Augustine had developed? And I mean, there are lots of other questions that I think fall under those big headings. So, for example, um, you know, my, my main question was, what difference does it make to have a, a faith commitment and to read scripture in that way? That does raise the question then of what the contribution is of historical study, uh, linguistic study. Are those things sort of displaced if you invest heavily in a faith commitment, or are they still relevant? I think that's a, a very significant question that I wanted to wrestle with in the book. And I mean, I definitely came to the conclusion that, you know, those sort of linguistic issues, historical issues, and so on, are absolutely crucial. Also, they're just not the whole picture. Yeah. And I think probably for those of us who are primarily biblical exegetes we're concerned i guess sometimes that theological readings of scripture often looks like a wrestling match where theology is always the one that comes out on top um that to uh, you know uh, biblical exegesis is put in a neck lock and not allowed to do too much work um, but you're explicitly bringing um historical critical work into conversation um, with theology and uh, I thought that was a particularly helpful um, aspect of, of your book and I guess before we you know well, we're going to get into this in more depth shortly because you, you do single out Augustine along this way but what other voices shaped you as you develop these questions as these intuitions um, were sharpened and then found expression 
Um, another figure who's very important within the book um, is Spinoza. So he's a sort of early modern thinker who influenced uh, the whole history of biblical interpretation quite a lot. Um, and the usefulness of him for my project, I mean, is, is basically just that he's doing really the opposite of what I'm trying to do. Um, so he is approaching the Bible and thinking about who he is as an interpreter of the text um, in an explicitly naturalistic way. And so that means um, all that exists is the world and there's no sort of transcendent God at all. And so when we think about the Bible or the interpreter of the Bible, we, we don't think about those things in light of a transcendent God, but we think about them just in light of the physical world existing, um, and that's it. So he was important for me because it allowed me to say that the, the opposite of what I'm doing is this sort of naturalism rather than the opposite of what I'm doing is um, a historical, scholarly, and kind of linguistically informed type of approach. Because those things seemed good, even though naturalism in a sort of philosophical sense uh, seemed like something that I would need to reject based on the assumptions that I start with. Yeah. Darren, do you think that then this is a good summary of what, what you're saying? Uh, in most biblical studies related commentaries, um, there's a very clear distinction between the original auditors, writers, you know, they'll, they'll, uh, however we're going to phrase that, and their concerns and their world, and us, um, so that there's no attempt to associate the two, but rather to dislocate the two, to, to demonstrate the distance between us as readers now and them as listeners then, in order to avoid anachronism, you know, the big danger of anachronism. But I've been reading Bart's commentary on Romans recently, and he continually uses, you know, we this, we that, just including himself and his readers in the address of Paul's letter to the Romans. And is that what you mean when you, you talk about pushing back against methodological naturalism in, in saying that we're actually, we want to be included as those in, addressed by this text? I think that is definitely along the lines of what I'm pushing for. Um, I mean, if I could be a little bit more nuanced and detail-oriented on this response, just to um, clarify a bit what I'm not saying. I mean, it, it is definitely important, these sorts of concerns that, you know, biblical commentaries have to see, like, the many, many ways in which ancient audiences, you know, were different than modern audiences. Like, that, that absolutely is crucial. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to say at all that that's a waste of time. I think that's necessary and, and really indispensable for good commentary. Um, but I think even, even though we want to see the distance, we also want to have, and here's where theology you know, would really come in, we also want to have ways in which we can identify ourselves with those ancient audiences. Um, they're not the same as us, but we can identify with them in strong ways um, such that the text does speak to us um, 
I mean, you you mentioned Bard, and Bard is certainly an important interlocutor for uh, the book that I wrote. I mean, he says, in thinking about his own uh, sort of life life journey, that as a preacher, he didn't feel that what he had been taught as far as the way to read the Bible was that useful as a preparation uh, for preaching, but he needed to find a way in which to to kind of let the word leap the gap. And I think that that commentary on Romans that he wrote um, as a very early work in his career was a sort of crucial point in, in his own process of figuring out how how he needs to think about those issues. Hmm. Well, maybe that's a good segue into Augustine because you do find Augustine to be a, a like-minded traveler and Augustine gives you a framework to unite those historical questions and alongside you know, theological questions in a way that doesn't pit one against the other. So why don't you just talk a bit about what was attractive about Augustine and um, and how you see those historical and, and theological questions relating um, with Augustine's, you know, framework that you set out. Right. Uh, so I, I do have a couple of chapters within the book uh, that deal with Augustine and try and draw out um, points from him that are relevant for the project that I'm working on. Um, I think he's, he's really useful for this sort of project in that he has a very clear theological perspective on what the text of scripture actually is. And he, um, I mean, he uses the notion of signs as um, a sort of key concept to think about what, what the Bible actually is. And what does he mean by signs? Um, well, he has a, a fairly uh, sort of complicated discussion of different types of signs and uh, how all of that works. But I think what he's saying is that I mean, in its simplest form, when we're reading the Bible, we're trying to engage with the subject matter of the text. So we're not reading the text to focus on the text itself, really. Um, But we look at the text for the sake of thinking about um, and engaging even in an affective sort of way with the subject subject matter of the text. Um, And for him, obviously... God is the primary subject matter of the text, the, the triune God. Um, so I, I thought Augustine had a particularly clear, particularly robust way of thinking theologically about the text and then also um, about who he is as a reader of the text. So he's, he's also thinking in a th- sort of theological register about himself as an interpreter. Um, and the, the sort of upshot of that is just that it means that he, as a reader, um, should respond in faith to the affirmations that the biblical text is making about its subject matter. So I think Augustine puts those two things together in a way that's really helpful. And so even though, <clears throat> even though he is writing many, many centuries before us, I think we have a lot that we can learn from him. 
And you also talk about the goals that Augustine sets forth in terms of, of reading. What's the purpose and goal of reading? And one of those goals is to engage with the subject, engage with God. But the other goal that Augustine sets out is love of neighbor. And you talk a bit about that. And I wondered if you uh, might just riff on uh, how love of neighbor helps us as historians. Because I think that's actually a really interesting um interesting connection to make that that you know we as historians are trying to do historical work but that actually might have um had some connections with augustine's neighbor love in terms of appreciating the audience the original audience as another neighbor and not displacing their concerns or you know indeed we could do that um we could do that synchronically also that we 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 engage scripture as as those who are endeavoring to love neighbors and that means something for historical work i just wonder if you had any thoughts about that that's a good question i think it seems like what you're doing is extending the argument of the book a little bit Probably, uh, sort fair. of creatively um but you know in a way that i would welcome um i mean i think that category of neighbor could be used to think about uh the original audience of the text and in a sense loving them would mean then uh valuing and and trying to understand what their circumstances were and uh what difference that makes within the process of interpretation so there is that certainly that social aspect of reading that is important for Augustine. So I think, um, I mean, I think that idea seems promising and, and worth worth stewing about. It's not, I didn't exactly take that line explicitly no, within the text, but um, I think I would, I would welcome that as a possible avenue for exploration. Um, now you have a chapter that bridges the historical section of the book and your own constructive proposal that sets out what theological reading is not. Um, so what, in your view, is the opposite of theological reading? And we've already used this phrase, me methodological naturalism, metaphysical naturalism. Perhaps you could be really explicit in what you mean by those phrases as well. Sure. Um, so when I, when I deal with Spinoza, I mean, he's someone who's a, a metaphysical naturalist. So that simply means he thinks that all that exists is the world. He doesn't think there's any sort of God who transcends the world. So that was a very radical idea for his own Jewish tradition. Um, I mean, that would be a radical idea for a traditional Christian as well. Um, but he applies that sort of ontology or theory of what exists to scripture and to interpretation and comes up with, I mean, a very clear and impressive sort of approach to scripture. Um, but it's just one that is, is really fundamentally different and even antithetical to what I was trying to do within the book. So I really am rejecting uh, metaphysical naturalism and then also methodological naturalism, which is just any approach that... Um, even if it doesn't have any sort of commitments in the area of ontology in the way that Spinoza does, it 
sort of operates in the same way um, when it comes to practices of interpretation. So that also I'm wanting to reject essentially, um, but that doesn't mean rejecting historical investigation. That doesn't mean rejecting uh, the importance of understanding the text in the original language. And so it was really important for me to emphasize naturalism within the book um, to show that I was rejecting that rather than history and other sort of typically scholarly concerns. Because I, I just want, I want to be clear that I'm valuing the one even as I'm pushing back against the other. Yeah, it's almost as you're venturing out into no man's land between biblical studies and theology and sort of standing and hoping and I hope too that biblical scholars will come across and meet you in this place that no one is currently, you know, not no one, but there aren't very many people kind of standing in that gap trying to hold theology and history closely together. Um, or we, you know, biblical scholars get pushed back from different things. Because you talk about in your chapter on the text, you talk about these the two different kinds of dualisms. And one is a dualism in, that you see in some theologians, and another is a dualism that you see in, um, in biblical studies. Can you talk about those two different kinds of dualisms and why each of them are problematic for theological reading? Sure. Um, I think the one type of dualism is, is just the idea that theology matters and history doesn't. So if we're reading the Bible, you know, we really can play fast and loose with history. We don't need to dig into the past in order to understand what Paul was saying or uh, what Jesus was all about or what the Old Testament was all about. Um, and I, I look at some examples of that, but I think that's it's really just drastically one-sided um, to say that theology matters, but history doesn't. Um, there really are even theological reasons not to say that. And, well, like what? Well, I think the simplest way to say why it matters is just that, I mean, the, at, at one level, the text is a historical document, even if that's not an exhaustive description of it. It is true to say that it's a a document that comes from a past context. And so if that text is a set of signs pointing to God, then we need to engage it at that level. You know, maybe at other levels too, but at least at that level. Um, and so I think we need to avoid saying that, you know, history just doesn't matter at all, even if we want to kind of bring theology into the mix and say that 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 matters too. Um, I mean, some of the some of the commentaries that have been written as explicitly theological commentaries, I think a lot of people are just starting to see that when authors don't take history seriously, that just so very often results in sloppy interpretation um, and just a lack of close engagement with the details of the text. And I think that's been unsatisfying for a lot of people. Um, 
And so I think all I'm trying to do really in, in that part of the book is to like give an account of that dissatisfaction and say, like at root, what I think is, is wrong with ignoring history completely in order to say that theology is important. And um, that, that is where biblical scholars are going to you know, give you a hearty amen, because we want to see close engagement with the text that we you know, love and cherish so much. That, that's our bread and butter, is close engagement. But you don't let us off the hook either. So, Right, that's true. Gonna... So there's, there's another side uh, to the argument of that chapter. So I also deal with um, one example of an approach to the Bible that, that in, in, in very simple terms, basically just says that history is the only thing that matters um, and that we need to put theology to the side when we're reading the text in the sense that our faith commitments um, or our religious allegiances, they just aren't relevant to reading the text at all. Um, so I think that's that's also lopsided, and that's also not what I'm ultimately wanting. And my sort of account of the biblical text as a set of signs um, wants to push back against that as well. So as important as history is, I mean, for the, the whole nature of my project is to say, what difference does a faith commitment make? That is also important. Um, and so there's not a sort of exclusivity of the importance of history that would then like box out um, mm. theology or religious commitment. In what would you say to someone like Pannenberg, who, who says that God has addressed us in acts in history, um, and therefore the task of Christian theology is primarily historical? Um, in other words, he's trying to deal with the tension that you're tackling so well in this book, but but placing the emphasis squarely on the shoulders of God's acts in history, and therefore the historical method in order to recover them. Um, uh, what would you say about the um, the potential or problems for such an approach? That's a good question, and and Pannenberg is is not someone that I dealt with extensively in the book. Um, so I think, I mean, the basic point that I would want to make uh, to sort of distinguish what I'm doing from the way you summarized him just now is that, I mean, if, if he says God has addressed us in history and therefore we just need to pay attention to history when we're operating theologically or even reading the Bible, I think I would want to say that history is important, but I mean, ultimately there needs to be a strong way of underscoring divine transcendence. So, I mean, God, God transcends the world and I think transcends even this category of history, at least in the way he's defining it. And so I think what I'm doing with the notion of signs is, um, is really a way of conceiving of scripture so as to underscore divine transcendence. And so God is what the text is pointing to, and the text has a historical dimension to it, but um, that doesn't mean that history is all that we need to care about. 
<clears throat> well, I'm, I don't know about you, Aaron, but I'm I thinking think, that the first speed round that you have, and and we have we have written a special speed round, speed round for Darren because Darren is moving to Australia, and I don't think he's very familiar with Australia from conversations that I've had with him. So we thought we would write uh, an Australian slang speed round from words that I picked up when I lived in that part of the world. I lived in New Zealand, but the slang is pretty similar. So we're going to, um, we're going to ask you some questions about Australian slang and your job is to answer with the first thing that comes into your head. And maybe you'll know some of these and maybe you won't. We'll find out. So number one, what is the proper phrase you use to greet someone in Australia? I think you say good day in a in a sort of way that I can't manage to say it right now. <laughs> that's good. That's good. That's good. Uh, what is a capsicum? I have absolutely no idea. Maybe you can tell me. Yeah. A capsicum is what you would call a pepper. So if you go to a okay. sandwich shop and you want peppers on your sandwich, do not order peppers because they will just cover it in pepper. You want capsicum. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, you've, you've saved me some trouble if well, I go to go. Subway <laughs> in Australia. That's right, that's right. Um, Darren, where would you wear a budgie smuggler? Uh, I think you might wear that at the beach. Yep, yep, you would. And, uh, and you should look up uh, trumpet undies togs. And, and see the quintessential Australian uh, budgie smuggler <laughs> budgie smuggler uh, commercial. It's quintessential. And it was one of the first things that they showed us when we moved to New Zealand to understand what it was like to live in this part of the world. Okay, what is the American English equivalent of a bogan? Uh, again, I'm drawing a blank on that one, I have to say. <laughs> um... I think a bogan is like a, a hick or a redneck or a motorhead bogan. Okay. 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 What two items, Darren, can you can be called stubbies? I think I have heard that one before, <laughs> um, but I'm struggling a bit to remember the meaning of the terms. Okay. Or the, or the term. Okay. Do you have any any inclination? Of what stubbies. a stub you, uh, have to, you have to guess. How about a ticket stub? Nope, not a ticket stub. <laughs> no, Aaron, Aaron gets through a few stubbies before breakfast <laughs> in the morning. Yeah, right. <laughs> okay, stubbies can refer to like beer bottles, like short beer bottles. Stubbies, okay. or okay. it's a brand of rugby, um, rugby shorts. Okay. So both of those things. So, All right. So Good like a quintessentially Australian and thing is to go to a Stubbies and Singlets party. <laughs> Excellent. I look forward to those. Uh, okay, Darren. What? <laughs> okay, if you if you go to a Stubbies and Singlets party as part of your you know don't go in a budgie smuggler position. <laughs> no, you have to wear Stubbies and a singlet. Hence the name. <laughs> um. Please post pictures on Facebook. Okay. Or we can add them to your on-script interview okay. page. <laughs> okay, Darren, what has happened if you've busted a plugger? <laughs> if I have busted a plugger, 
sounds like it could I've be borderline. I've unclo- unclogged a toilet. Oh, no, you've broken your flip-flop. <laughs> uh, if someone tells you to stop whinging, what are they asking you to stop doing? I think they're saying I should stop complaining. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good, good one uh, to use with your children. And finally, and if you get this wrong, you can't move there. Um, what is the proper response to Aussie, Aussie, Aussie? Um. <laughs> oh no! You're gonna have to help me out, Chris. Do you know Aussie, Aussie, Aussie? Isn't it something like oi, oi, oi. Yeah. Yes, it is. Okay. Well, you'll have to you'll have to work on it. That's the, and you'll have to also work on your. You know, are you gonna be a Wallabies fan? Because if you are, we can't be friends anymore. Just so you know. I haven't sort of picked up. <laughs> I haven't determined my allegiance in terms of sports fans. <laughs> Really? No one likes rugby? Oh, I'm sad. Okay, well, and the other reason I'm saying that is because I am an All Blacks fan, and I will always be one, and no one will tell me differently. So, Of course, you live in New Zealand. That's right, so we don't, we don't, I mean, but I think it's important that if you're moving to Australia, that you know the proper response to Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. Now I do, now I do. That's right. So I'm more prepared than I was before. That's good, that's good. But you have some homework, I think, before you move. It seems like I do. seems like I do. That and, you know, learning about all of the scary animals and and um, and spiders and whatnot that live there, so you can avoid them. Well, or not. This, this, these questions almost busted my plugger, I must say. That just sounds so wrong. <laughs> anyway, back <laughs> to the book. Um, now, uh, we've already covered quite a bit of ground in, you know, what you're trying to do, the the worlds that you're trying to bring together, um, in particular, um, you're thinking about the reader as someone of faith who doesn't commit to methodological naturalism or metaphysical naturalism, um, but rather sees themselves as um, as someone incorporated in the divine salvific economy, you know, as those as sinners who are addressed by God's word of, of salvation and are therefore incorporated into Christ and so on. So you're theologically locating the reader um, and making this quite a um, this profound argument as a, as a central pillar in your book. Now, my question then um, becomes, well, you know, elaborate on all of that. You know, please help us to understand what you mean um, in your book when you talk about um, uh, the reader being theologically located. Um, but then in light of that, what practices need to change um, if we're locating the reader theologically? I mean, what happens to my Bible reading um, uh, in order to move me away from um, the stance of, let's say, methodological naturalism into the, the, the posture that you're advocating? I think for me, the importance of faith for the reader, I mean, it does a number of different things. Um, it's very clearly rejecting methodological or metaphysical naturalism. Um, so that's one thing. I think it's also stressing the way in which the reader needs to be receptive to the testimony of the text. So it's, I mean, it's a way of saying that um, what is disclosed through the text is something that, that ought to be 
understood and affirmed by the reader and and even integrated into that person's worldview. Um, so receptiveness to the testimony of the text, I think, is, is an implication of reading with faith. And I think another thing it does is it, it does give us a way to identify with readers in past contexts. Um, so they are basically, if we are responding to what the text signifies and receiving that, that puts us in at least a strong level of continuity with readers from the past who have um, also read the text and also responded in faith to um, what the text is disclosing to them. They may have understood things slightly differently. I mean, of, of course, if we look at the details, that's going to be true. Um, but if we're reading with faith, I think we can we can also say that we're in a strong level of continuity with readers in the past. So I think there we have a way to think in positive terms about I mean, what some scholars call historical distance um, without absolutizing that distance or without making that um, sort of gap between present readers and past readers, one that's unbridgeable. Brilliant. Um, now, following then, the second part of the question was, you know, what what practices change then? If in my Bible study, in my Bible reading, what would you suggest that I, as a biblical exegete, uh, take on board um, from this um, account of the reader's receptivity and faith? Right. Okay. Thank you for reminding me about the, the other part of your question. Um, I think there are a number of practices that I wanted to highlight toward the end of the book that I you know, want to recommend as part of theological reading. I guess just as a footnote, I wouldn't say that they follow directly and only from the notion of the reader and the, and the centrality of faith within that but they follow from sort of everything that's gone before in the book. So they follow from, you know, the understanding of the text as a set of signs, as well as um, the stress on the reader as one who engages the, the text with faith. So, I mean, those practices more specifically, um, I mean, I explain within the book uh, using some sort of terminology from this area of discussion as um, explication, meditation, and application. Um, I use a bit of Latin in the book to show off, but I won't, I won't do that here. <laughs> um, so, I mean, basically, explication is just kind of following the line of the text or following the sort of arguments uh, or points that are being made within the text itself. Meditation means uh, sort of bringing those within one's own frame of reference, um, using concepts that one is comfortable with um, to sort of latch onto what the text is saying, um, but doing that also in a way that reflects genuinely what's in the text. So not trying to sort of override what's in the text with um, ideas that are familiar to you, but looking for a sort of match between those two. Um, 
And then finally, application. I mean, in, in a sort of full, the fullest possible um, implementation of theological reading, that's also important. And that simply means engaging the text as a way to think about issues that confront you as a reader, um, and even to use the text as a sort of framework with which to engage life. Even, even in the 20th century, um, this text with an origin in the past can, can have that effect for theological readers who are engaging with it today. Are there particular biblical scholars, theologians out there who you think are, are good examples of, of this, who are presenting us with good models of, of how we should engage scripture? Uh, there are lots of them. Um, there absolutely are many, many good examples out there, I think, of what I'm calling for. Um, I'm a bit hesitant to single out one or two because then I think that would give the impression that you know maybe they're the only people who are um, doing this in a positive way. Maybe one comment I can make just uh, to avoid not answering the question completely um, would be to say, I think what I'm calling for ultimately is, is pretty ambitious. Like theological reading is a demanding, um, ambitious sort of thing to try and do. And so realistically, probably what's going to happen is that not one single person is going to be able to do all of these things, at least as well as they can possibly be done probably what's going to happen, and I think this is what's already happening in lots of ways, is that people are making different sorts of contributions that can sort of come together as a whole and sort of constitute theological interpretation of Scripture. So I think lots of you know biblical scholars, like, like both of you, are contributing to this in, in certain ways. Um, you know, theologians... I think are contributing typically from their own angle. And so really, I, I wouldn't want to really point, point to one person and say, this one person holds it all together. But I think you know, the whole discussion of theological reading of scripture can show us the kind of totality of something that's interesting um, and hopefully useful for the church and also um, part of what's going on within university level discussions of how to approach the Bible. Hmm. So in, in your description of the reader and your description of practice, you use uh, a stance of faith, right? The importance of faith. Yeah. And um, as we think about how, because I am a person of faith, Chris is a person of faith. We both, and you are a person of faith, and we teach in theological education. And it, but it, it made me think. You know, when we say faith, a, a position of faith, how, how do we understand that term in this discussion, or how do we understand that term theologically? And maybe coupled with that, what's the role of the Holy Spirit in the process of reading and interpretation? Because that's something that you didn't talk about in the book, and maybe intentionally so. Um, I mean, I, I didn't talk about that 
much, I would say. There's a, a little tiny bit. Um, okay, a little tiny bit. I talked it was about not the crux of the argument. I talked about. Um, I mean, the, the notion of grace is important. Um, mm-hmm. As so, the faith that the reader has. I I did emphasize that that's not a sort of capacity that the reader has within himself or within herself. So it's a really different sort of capacity in that way than, um, you know, like say just the ability to read by itself. Like if you mean read the newspaper or something like that. Um, so this capacity to read with faith is one that's like actually received from God as, as a gift. Um, and there I would want to say that, you know, the, the Holy Spirit is involved and, um, it's not a point that I sort of went on and on about within the book, but I certainly would want to say that it's there that the spirit is relevant. Um, so, I mean, we talked about methodological naturalism before. I mean, you, you really can't say what I just said about reading with faith if you really are committed to methodological naturalism, because I, you know, what I've just said is, how it's just a brief sort of description of like how divine action and divine agency are relevant and and even indispensable for um the implementation of the sort of program that i'm outlining within the book Hmm. so a time for our second speed round as we wrap things up um, got a few questions here. Again, the idea is just your knee-jerk response. Um, so, what is the most important book published in theology in the last 50 years? Uh, the last 50 years. I was influenced quite a lot by John Webster's book, Holy Scripture. Um, so, I don't want to say that for everyone that was the most important book, but for me, um, it had quite a lot of influence, and I think it informs the work that I'm doing within the book that I have just written. Um, now, please don't say uh, budgie in response to this one. <laughs> okay. But if you could be any animal in the world, what would you be? Um, I think I would like to be an eagle. It would be fun to be able to fly in the way that eagles do. What his- It's a very American word. To, <laughs> yeah. to, or, Yes, that's right. It's a a post-July 4th sort of answer. I'm trying to show my patriotism. The 5th of July. And uh, sort of enduring... There's no outlet in Oxford for that sort of patriotism. So thanks for injecting it in in this. this I want to represent in in the way that I can. Now, what historical figure would you most like to have a few beers with? Stubbies with? (laughs) Stubbies. If I could have... Stubbies with Augustine, um, that would be something that I would really enjoy doing, for sure. I'm not sure that he would want to have a stubby himself, but uh, (laughs) if we could talk, if we could have a chat, that would be a great thing. Do you read fiction? Uh, I occasionally do. These days, with small children at home and um, a move that I'm trying to orchestrate um i don't read a whole lot of fiction but i i very occasionally do now we have a very important question that we 
always ask our, our guests on, on script. Um, what is the one major concept, assumption in theology um, that you think needs to die? Ah, that needs to die. Goodness. Um, well, I think I've challenged a fair number of ideas within the book that I've written. So I think I'll say, I mean, the, the idea that at least some people have, I think this has been eroded quite a lot recently and in a good way. Um, but the idea that some people have, that theology and the Bible should have nothing to do with each other. Um, I mean, it, it'd be good if that was were eroded further and went away completely. I think this whole discussion of theological reading of scripture has done quite a lot to undermine uh, that idea. But if it just went ahead and died, to use your term, um, from my point of view, I think that would be a good thing. And to wrap up, Darren, uh, putting you on the spot just a minute. Okay. What do you think is the most important implication that your book has for the church today? I think that the book I've written, I mean, can encourage the church to continue to read in faith. Um, I mean, that's something that has been, I think, natural for the church to do. And I mean, I hope that what I've done just provokes people to think a bit more about what exactly that involves. Um, and maybe to try to bring together um, things that seem like, you know, we often feel that we need to choose between. Like we can read with faith and also read with understanding of history and the linguistic form of the Bible. Um, so I think I would want to encourage people to read with faith, but not to um, leave aside other things that sometimes people feel like they need to leave aside if they do that. I think that's right. And I think that uh, when I read your book and I thought about recommending your book uh, for students uh, who are at theological college training for ministry, the thing that um, struck me about it is that here's an example of scholarship that holds together uh, the rigorous academic standard that the academy demands uh, and faith commitments and shows that you really can uh, come to theological college and be a person of faith and not come away as a head on a stick. And also, I hope shows the church that you, um, that, that faith and, and thinking are not at odds with, with one another, as so often I think um, in certain streams of evangelicalism we see that faith and thinking are pitted against one another. So to the degree that you are thinking that then you aren't really a person of faith. And I think what you have shown in your book and your interview now is that faith and thinking absolutely belong together um, and that faith and history belong together. And we're really grateful for the contribution and especially for the interview today. So thanks for joining us on OnScript. And we'll see you all next time, OnScript superfans. Bye-bye. Thanks very much for having me. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/donate.